if you would take your Bibles and open to Mark chapter 9. Mark 9 is where we'll be in the, in the Word this morning. As you turn there, here's a question. Would you rather go to a wedding or to a funeral? If given the choice, my guess is that most of you would rather go to a wedding than to go to a funeral. Weddings, generally exciting occasions, time for rejoicing with those you love, not to mention a party, usually good food, cake, had me at cake, right? Funerals are different. Sometimes there's cake. It's not to say that every funeral is gloomy, but they're certainly more somber than a wedding. If you go to a somber wedding, something's wrong. You expect a somber funeral. Weddings are joyous. Funerals are generally marked by grief, mourning. That said, while I think all of us would probably rather go to a wedding than go to a funeral, I think there's a lot of value in going to funerals. Funerals often can accomplish something that a wedding never would. When we attend a funeral, we usually are forced to slow down, to think about significant matters, to think more carefully about our lives, about the time we have and the way we're using the time we've been given. Well, this morning, I'll tell you that our text feels more like attending a funeral than attending a wedding. But that's okay. It's a passage that should cause us to feel the weightiness of things. A passage that should cause us to think carefully about our lives, about whether or not we're being serious, whether or not we're taking seriously the call that God's given us. So I want to start by preparing you for what we're walking into. We've come to a passage of warning a passage that pushes us and forces us to consider hard things. But that said, I'll tell you this. I'm glad, and you should be glad, we should be glad that we have this particular passage of Scripture from our Lord. In fact, it's a message that could save our lives. What we have here in this passage is Jesus warning us, waving flags of warning he wants us to know that as those who follow him, there are things that must not be overlooked, things that must be taken very seriously. He wants us to know that there are things that can destroy us if we're not careful. So while I'd rather us be in a wedding text than a funeral text, I'm glad for the opportunity to pick up the warning flags and to wave them and to trust that as we hear the warnings, it could keep us from harm. I'm glad to share warnings with people I love about how you can be safe. Before we go to the text, let me just say a couple things about where we are. We are at a, a unique place in the Gospel of Mark. If you've been with us over the last couple of weeks, you know we're following this conversation between Jesus and his disciples. They were walking on the road to Capernaum, having this conversation. Then they sat down in the house of Peter and continued this conversation. 
And we're in this part of Jesus' ministry where he's really focused on preparing his disciples for what's to come. He wants them to know what's going to happen to him, and he wants them to be ready for what's expected of them. And that's where we are, hearing this teaching of Jesus as he prepares his disciples. And the reason I said this passage is unique is because as we come to these verses 42 through 50, it seems like what Mark is doing is he's actually bringing together several different teachings of Jesus and, and putting them together in this place. And the reason I say that is because we find a couple of these teachings in other gospels and other contexts. And this isn't completely unusual. Sometimes, you know, the disciples had been with Jesus. They had walked and they had heard his teachings. As they write down the gospels, they're trying to convey a message. And each in their own way sometimes use the sayings of Jesus in different places in order to help us understand what they're trying to convey, what the Spirit is conveying through them. So while Matthew and Luke use some of these teachings in different contexts, Mark has brought them together here. And he's brought them together in this section that's all about the cost of discipleship. And I'd say that's the unifying theme. We're going to kind of look at a few different of these teachings that have been brought together. But I think the unifying theme in all of them is the nature, the cost of discipleship. And specifically, we get these warnings. Warnings that we need to hear as followers of Jesus. I feel like it's going to be more of a funeral than a wedding message. But I do pray that God will use this text and these warnings to help us and to motivate us as we take the message of Jesus and the call to follow him to the world. Mark chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 42 and read to verse 50. So I hope you have your Bibles and that you'll follow along as I read. Hear the word of God. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame with two feet than to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you be made salty again? Have salt in yourselves. And be at peace with one another. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Certainly ask that God would add his blessing to the reading and preaching of his word and use it to strengthen us as his church. You may have noticed your notes there, the title given to the message this morning. Warning. The stakes are high. As I read the passage, you may have recognized why that could be a fitting title. A real sense in which Mark has brought together the series of, of warnings from Jesus for us. Warnings that there are things that could threaten our eternity. 
things that could keep us from eternal joy and in fact lead us to eternal punishment. Jesus is telling us here that there are things that could lead us to hell. If I say that, as I say that, I wonder, I wonder if there's questions in your mind, questions about the nature of salvation. After all, don't we believe that we're saved by faith and not by works? And isn't our salvation sustained by the grace of God and not by the things that we do? Isn't it true that we are adopted and sealed and secured in God's hold? These are things we believe and affirm. So I guess the question would be, are these warnings even for us? Is this a passage for unbelievers? Let me say, I believe that this passage of Scripture is for all of us, believers and unbelievers alike. It's a passage that explains what it means and the attitude that we must have if we are followers of Jesus. We should be clear. God saves, and if we are his, we will never be let go. We aren't saved based on works, and we don't keep our salvation based on what we do. The Bible's clear on this point. However, the Bible's also clear on this, that those who are his will live his way. That it's a high and costly calling to be a disciple of Christ. And that all those who truly follow him will reflect him and have an allegiance to him. So we go into a passage that talks about sin and our fight against sin and the consequences of sin. I think it's fair to ask and answer the question, can we lose our salvation? The answer is no. If we are his, we will never be let go. But passages like this are still for us. They're a call to examine ourselves and to ensure that we are, in fact, among those who will not be let go. To see if the fruit of our lives shows evidence of his work in our hearts. It's a warning, a reminder that a heart that's given to sin could be a heart that has never truly been changed. Jesus is describing the seriousness of what's at stake. It's a, a passage about salvation, about eternity, about sin, about death. And it's a call for us to ensure that we are, in fact, the people of God. We see in the first part of the passage is two warnings. We get that first warning there in verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now as we read this, I think Mark is calling to mind what Jesus said back in 37. Remember they're, they're in the house, most likely Peter's house. Jesus is there, he's sitting. And we're told that he takes a child and he holds him. We read there in verse 37, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. We talked about that verse, how it's, it's a call for us to welcome those who are lowly, abandoned, forgotten. So we talked about a child. He's not only talking about young people, but anyone who may be overlooked or forgotten or lowly. And now we come to this passage, 
And we see again a reference to the little ones. But remember the context. When Jesus took that kid and put him in his lap, what was he trying to convey to his disciples? This is on the hills of their discussion about who was greatest. He was calling them to humility. He told them that to be greatest of all, you must be the servant of all. But do you remember what happened right after that? That passage we saw last week where John comes to Jesus and says, we saw someone casting out a demon in your name and we told him to stop because he wasn't following us. Again, we see this focus on status and position, the pride of the disciples. They're thinking much of themselves and not loving others well. And it's in that context that Mark shares this teaching of Jesus. Reminding us to love well those who are weak. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Here's Jesus. You could still picture him holding this child. And it's a warning about how we interact with those who could easily be led astray. This is the warning. There will be a severe punishment for anyone who causes a brother or sister to stumble or to fall or to sin. A call from Jesus to recognize the cost of causing someone else to walk away. Of causing another person to turn their back on the living God. Of causing another person to doubt or to lose faith. we understand the seriousness of sin we should understand the the weight of what it means to lead another person into sin it's a warning stated negatively or to warn us but we could we could consider what's the positive command in this text well it's a call to love and protect others right it's not lead them to a place where they could be put into danger it's a call to care well for one another And to be careful that we never lead another to stumble or fall through our example, through our direct temptation, through our teaching. The heart of this warning is the reality. Sin leads to death. And a warning to anyone who would lead another down that path. We see how serious a warning it is by the second part of the verse. Anyone who would lead another this way, who would lead one into sin, lead another to stumble and to fall away, anyone who would lead someone, this is better for you. That you have a millstone tied around your neck. What's a millstone? I think, I think there are small millstones. It's a, it's a stone that's used for grinding grain. But in this context, it's a, it's a really large stone, a, a circular flat stone that would have been tied to a mule or a donkey and they would walk in a circle turning this large stone that would crush grain. Suffice it to say that if it's tied around your neck, you're not going anywhere. So get the imagery. A millstone tied around your neck and you're thrown into the sea. From the time you hit the water, you have no chance of survival. 
you will sink to the bottom, you will gasp for air, and there will be no relief. Most of us freak out if someone just jumps on top of us in the pool. You know, just for a second we're trapped. But this is the imagery. Jesus says that punishment is better than what you receive if you cause another to stumble or to fall away. What we see here is the seriousness of sin. The seriousness of threatening someone's eternal soul. Now, let me just stop for a second. Because I think we have a, a certain temptation throughout all of this passage. The temptation, I think, is the same. Our temptation when we hear Jesus say things like this, maybe to try to find ways that this certainly could not apply to us. Surely he's talking about really extreme situations here. Surely this is about very intentional and severe harm. Surely this is dealing with some outlandish kind of abuse or manipulation that we could never be a part of. That's a temptation, isn't it? To decide this must be really exceptional. But let me encourage you to hear the warning and to accept the protection that a warning provides. Jesus says these things, so we will hear them and be saved. So hear the warning. Jesus says to us, there will be a severe punishment for anyone who causes another brother to stumble or fall, which means we must be careful, right? We must be careful about the example we set. Parents, we have kids that live with us all the time. They see our examples. They see our way of life. God forbid our sin leads them to sin. Our sin leads them to fall away. Of course, the positive command, trying to find the positive command, is to love others well, to protect others from the danger of sin. So this is a warning about our responsibility to others. As the people of God, as the people who know what's at stake, we should be most concerned about those around us and protect at all costs those over whom we have influence. So I was thinking about this verse, I was reminded of what Paul says. First Thessalonians, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. The words of Jesus are a warning. They're also a call to love others well, to care enough about others that we would never do anything that would lead to their harm. We could spend the rest of our time together probably just unpacking that. But there is another warning. The first warning is about our relationship with other people, that we should be very careful how we interact with others. We see the seriousness and what's at stake. The second warning is about our relationship, not to others, but to sin. Verse 43, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And then we see a, a th there's three parallel statements, right? emphasizing the point. Second, if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And then the repetition again, again, emphasizing the point. 
Maybe your sin's not caused by your hand. Maybe it's not caused by your foot. Maybe your temptation to sin comes through your eyes. If your eye causes you to sin, then tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Three parallel statements, each making the same point, but the the repetition encourages us to consider the magnitude of the warning. Verses about the seriousness of sin. I wonder where you've been this week and you're thinking about sin. Have you been aware of your sin? Have you been loving sin? Have you been fighting sin? What we have here is a, a warning from Christ about the seriousness, the deadly seriousness of sin. We see how serious it is through the extreme call to put it away. We also see the seriousness of sin as he reminds us three times at least of the consequences of sin. In this passage, we have repeated mentions of hell. Jesus says three times, take radical efforts to avoid sin because the consequence of sin is hell. Hell is something that most of us probably do not like to think about much less speak about. But it's something that Jesus talks about quite a lot. You know, there's some who suggest that the Old Testament God, that's the God of vengeance, but Jesus came with a message of love and forgiveness. And to be sure, he preached love and he preached forgiveness. But you know, there's no one else in the Bible who says more about hell than Jesus himself. We won't go into a complete discussion of the doctrine, the topic of hell this morning, but there is a lot right here in our text for us to consider. I encourage you to hear it. And while it's something we don't like necessarily to think about, to allow the reality of what's being said here to serve as a warning. We see this word hell, it comes from the Greek word Gehenna which is significant because that word's a reference to a valley on the south side of Jerusalem. A significant place. See, in the, in the years before the coming of Christ, this was a valley where there was a common practice of worship to a pagan god named Molech. One of the primary ways that Molech was worshipped was through child sacrifices. This valley was a place where kids were killed in the worship of a false god. To make matters worse, in periods of time, even the Jews went away, became followers of Molech, offered their own children in sacrifice. What we know from the Old Testament is that the prophet Jeremiah spoke out against this practice. King Josiah put an end to it, at least in this particular place. We know from 2 Kings that Josiah went, he desecrated the place, he destroyed it, and he turned it into a garbage dump. It became a place where the waste of Jerusalem was brought and burned. It was a place known for constant fire and filth. 
think about what would be carried out to a dump, what is carried out to a dump now, but even more so when it was more difficult. We have trucks that take everything, but for them to carry something out to the dump, it's the things that they must get out of the city. Think dead animals, think human waste. All these things brought to this dump and burned. Suffice it to say, it's an unpleasant place, a place where fire was always burning. And over time, this place, this burning heap of filth became a symbol. A symbol for the place of God's wrath. This place of never-ending fire. And so Jesus uses this word, Gehenna. And it was a symbol for them that pointed them to the reality of God's everlasting judgment. Verse 43, he calls it the unquenchable fire. In verse 48, he says it's a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, we need to come back and finish this discussion, but I I did think it was significant for me to point out what you see in verse 44. If you have your Bible, you can look at verse 44. And if you're using an ESV translation, you will not find it. You can skip down and look at verse 46, and you won't find it. What's going on here? Now, if you're using a different translation, maybe a King James, you you probably have a verse 44, and you probably have a verse 46. Some translations may have brackets around them. Some have an asterisk next to them, probably a footnote in the bottom of your Bible next to verses 44 and 46, or maybe noting the absence there. What's going on? I was hesitant to to stop kind of the message, but I think this is important, and this this is helpful for us. What's going on here is a result of different manuscripts that were used to translate the scriptures. So remember how we get our Bibles. We get our Bibles from original languages that were written on manuscripts and that were shared over time, not through photocopiers or computers because they didn't exist until very recently, but through hand copies. For generations and generations, the Bible was shared through handwritten copies. And we have so many of these more than any other ancient document. We have over 5,000 copies of, the, of, of manuscripts of the New Testament. Well, when our English translations, or when the Greek text that our, most of our English translations come from was first com- compiled, about the 1500s, the manuscripts they had had a verse 44 that it's the same as verse 48, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So we see this three-fold repetition. We see that inserted after the first one. Again, verse 46, inserted after the second one. And then in all of our texts, inserted the third time. Now, as time's gone, we found more and more manuscripts. And as we found more, we found that the older ones we found included this verse only once, verse 48. It stands to reason that the ones that are older are most likely more original. So what happened here? Most likely what has happened is a scribe, an effort to maintain the parallelism, parallelism, inserted this verse after verse 43 and after verse 45. Now, maybe you've never heard anything like this and you're thinking, what in the world is going on with my Bible right now? 
let me put you at ease. The fact that we have this conversation and the fact that these things are noted in our Bibles, this is actually very good news. We could talk about the process of translation. Maybe we should take a Wednesday evening or something and talk about that um, sometime. But we have here is proof of the abundance of care God took in preserving his word. Now, why do we skip verses 44 and 46? That's because when the numbers were added, we ha- those verses were generally included. We have more information now. But I don't want these variations to give you reason for doubt. In fact, I would suggest that the more you learn about how we got the text that we have, the more you can grow in confidence that, in fact, we have the very word of God as it was originally written. It's a massive point for discussion. It's really important. This was a, a point in case where I thought it was worth pausing just to say, what's going on here? So what's the verse in question? It was three times. Now we have it once for sure. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Again, it's an allusion to this valley south of Jerusalem. It's actually a quote from Isaiah 66, 24, where the very last verse of Isaiah They go out and they look at this valley. It's described as a place of filth. Animal carcasses there. Worms eating animals. It's always gross. There's always worms. Always worms and always fire. What do we learn about hell from this illusion? What's Jesus teaching us about the actual hell. But we learn here that it's a place of eternal, never-ending punishment and suffering. It's a place where all those who reject God's salvation will spend eternity. Not a word we should skip over too quickly. It's the place where the wrath of God is poured out forever on those who die in their sin. And maybe you're hearing this and you're thinking, I believe a lot about God. I believe a lot about Jesus. I believe a lot about the Bible. This is where we diverge. Maybe you don't believe that hell is real. Maybe you're okay with hell existing, but you don't believe in a God who would send anyone there. If that's where you are, I want you to consider that you are neglecting the clear teaching of Scripture. And you're not hearing the warning of Christ. The Bible tells us we have all sinned. Sin is our rebellion against God, and anyone who dies in their sin will be sent to a place of eternal punishment. That's bad news. But there is good news, isn't there? Which is what we come here together to celebrate every week. It's the message that we are called to proclaim that God, the God who made us, always had a plan of salvation. And his plan was to come to earth himself in flesh, the person of Jesus, to live a perfect life without sin so that he could stand in our place, bear the wrath of God that we deserve for us, rising from the dead in victory over sin and death. And the good news is that anyone who repents of their sin and believes in him does not go to the place of punishment, but instead has eternal life in the presence of God. If we believe this, and I hope you do, 
And if you've accepted that gift of salvation, church, we should be beside ourselves in gratitude and unable to keep this good news to ourselves. We should be a people who would want others to know their relationship with sin and the consequence of sin and the answer for sin. If we understand what Jesus is saying here, and I think he says it plainly, we should not be able to stay silent. We should recognize this is a message that must be shared because every person who remains in their sin has hell as their destination. We should talk more about this reality than we do. What's the context here? Why does he bring up hell? He brings up hell here not necessarily to teach us what hell is, but to help us consider the seriousness of sin that would lead someone to hell. How serious is sin? Well, the consequence of sin is hell. And so here's the warning. Here's the admonition. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Because you could go to hell. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off because it could lead you to hell. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It could lead you to hell. Now Jesus is using hyperbole. We have never come together and, and proclaimed, church, if you are here and you are in sin, come forward, we will cut off your hands. No. What we need is a new heart, not dismemberment. But Jesus is making a significant point here. If we remain in our sin, we go to hell, which stands to reason that there is no measure that's too extreme if it means saving us from that punishment. We could spend time, and if you listen to messages on this passage, people will spend time talking about the sins of the hand. Violence, theft, acts of sexual immorality, the sins of the feet. Feet take us to places where we've sinned. Sins of the eyes, lust, covetousness, greed, and on. Really, hands, feet, and eyes are all inclusive of all that we see, of all that we do, of everywhere we go. All the ways that we could be tempted to sin. While we value our hands, and we value our feet, and we value our eyes, the point Jesus is making is that because of the consequence of sin, even the things we value supremely are not worth keeping if they cause us to go to hell. Jesus is not actually calling for self-mutilation. He says elsewhere that sin doesn't come from without, it comes from within. The reason we sin isn't because of our hands. It's not because of our feet or because of our eyes. We sin because of the condition of our hearts, which means even if we cut off both of our hands, both of our feet, tore out both of our eyes, if we survived the mutilation, we would still be sinful people with sinful hearts. The solution is not cutting things off. The solution is repenting of our sin and turning to Jesus. There is nothing that's not worth in giving up if it keeps you from sin. I've always appreciated this phrase that this is a call to radical amputation. 
which means if you have relationships that draw you to sin, it may be wise to cut them off for a time. If you have a job that causes you to sin, it's worth not having a job to save your soul. If money encourages you to sin, then get rid of it. Isn't this what Jesus told the one who came to him? Asking how to get eternal life. And for this man, his struggle was the love of money, so Jesus said, give it all away. Only then can you inherit eternal life. If your internet connection causes you to sin, it's better to be without internet than to go to hell. Strong warnings, isn't it? What's he telling us? Sin is serious. Don't play with it. Run from it. We do see the good news in this text. There's a lot of emphasis on hell, but we also see that all those who do turn from their sin and turn to Christ gain eternal life. We see it three times as well. It's better for you to enter life crippled. Verse 43, verse 45, it's better for you to enter life lame. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God. I think when he says enter life, he's not talking about going back out into the world. He's talking about eternal life. We see that through the parallelism with the kingdom of God in that third time. The good news is no one goes into eternal life lame. And no one goes into eternal life crippled. When we go into eternal life, we go to a place where there's no more mourning, no more fight against sin, no more temptation. And all those who turn from their sin and turn to God will have life. The point Jesus is making is there's nothing in this life worth keeping if it stands in the way of your ability to repent. If we lose everything else but gain Christ, it's worth it. It's a warning about the cost of discipleship. In church, we should all feel this to a certain extent. We should most likely all be able to point to something that we have had to give up in our pursuit of Christ. And if you've never given up anything in your pursuit of Christ, there's a chance that you've not considered your heart carefully enough. That there are things that you have hung on to that God has called you to give up. Over and over we're told that the, to follow Christ is a sacrifice. It's a, a, a denial of self. We can go back to chapter 8. Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. We hear this over and over from Jesus. That following him means turning from sin and from self and turning to Christ. If you're here, and I know, most of, I know all of you, for followers of Christ, we should think about sin regularly. Every day engaged in the fight, hating sin and fighting to put it off, recognizing that no pleasure in life is worth putting yourself in opposition to God. So if you're struggling with anger, by all means, fight against your anger. If your struggle is lust, do not allow it to keep you in rebellion against God. So much we could say here. We've seen two warnings so far. A warning about how we interact with others and the danger of leading another person into sin. 
a warning about our relationship with sin and the, and the, and the severe consequences of remaining in sin. And then we move on and we see a few other sayings from Jesus. Say on the front end that this is, this is a hard passage to understand. As I went to some resources to try to gain further insight, some said very little because they didn't know what to say. Some said a lot because they didn't know what to say. Three sayings, and, and they're connected by key words. So we go from the fire in this section to the fire in verse 49. And then we add a word, salt. For everyone will be salted with fire. Now in the next verse, we see salt again. But I do think that we're talking about two different kinds of salt and that these sayings are held together thematically by the cost of discipleship and then by the metaphor of salt. In this case, salt with fire. The only place we see salt and fire together anywhere else in the Bible is in the Levitical sacrificial system where offerings were sprinkled with salt and then burned on fire. So I think this verse, which I think stands alone as a saying of Jesus here, could mean one of two things, potentially both. It's a reference to sacrifice, which is consistent with this theme, the cost of discipleship. I think this is telling us, in part, that all of us, all who name the name of Christ, will be salted with fire. All of us who name the name of Christ must live as sacrifices. Isn't this what we hear in Romans chapter 12? Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. See how consistent this is with our passage be transformed by the renewal of your mind, by the, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Everyone will be salted with fire, which I think in part is a, a reminder that we will have to sacrifice for the cause of Christ. But these sacrifices were sacrifices of purification, which is reminiscent of 1 Peter 1. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and the glory and the honor of the revelation of Jesus Christ. And all this points us to the reality that the, the call to Jesus is hard, it is difficult, it requires sacrifice, it requires suffering. But we know that all the sacrifice and all the suffering is God's means through which he makes us his kind of people refines us and changes us. It's a reminder that following him will not be easy, but it will be worth it. You may lose everything, but you gain Christ. And then there's a transition to another saying and another use of salt as a metaphor, but the metaphor changes. Now it's not salt sprinkled on sacrifices, but a domestic use of salt, salt of preservation. Salt is good. But if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves. Now this is a metaphor of Jesus that we do see used in Matthew in a different context. It's salt being used as a preservative, something that keeps things from spoiling. And in that way, God has left us in the world to do salt work. 
to be preservants. We've been called to be witnesses of Jesus in the way that we live and in the way that we speak. But we see a problem in the verse, don't we? We've been called to be salt in the world, and yet it says, what if the salt isn't salty? What if those who Jesus has sent to the world aren't doing the work that he's left us to do? Could we be guilty of this? Having been left in the world as salt, but not functioning as salt? We have the admonition in verse 50. Have salt in yourselves. Be salty. Do the work of an evangelist. And if we've paid attention to the rest of this passage, we should not have to ask why this work is needful. We've been reminded this morning of the presence of sin in every person. And we've been told of the consequence of sin, which is hell, forever. We've considered the good news that Jesus came so that we can be saved from our sins and granted life. So if we've heard and understand the nature of sin, and we've heard and understand the consequence of sin, and we've heard and understand the good news, this should be all the motivation we need to be salty people. And God forbid we be like salt that has lost its saltiness. Because we live in a world that needs to be seasoned. We do have this saying in Matthew 5, and we know the meaning clearly because of the metaphor that follows it. It's there in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light Shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I'll point out the title of the sermon one more time. Warning. The stakes are high. What we've seen throughout this passage and what we've considered is the consequences of sin and now we have the reminder to go and to tell. The stakes are high. We must be faithful. Hell is real and we should tell people that. And we should tell them that if it would help them not go to hell, it would be worth it for them to cut off their hands and to cut off their feet and to pluck out their eyes. But thankfully, that is not required. What is required is repenting of the sins, placing your face in the one who allowed his hands to be pierced, the one who allowed his feet to be pierced, the one whose eyes were shut in death as he bore the wrath of God on our behalf. He gave his hands and his feet and his eyes were closed so that we don't have to cut ours off. But we can be saved through repentance and faith. All who call on him will be saved. It's the message we have and through it, people can be saved from their sins. The question is, will we be faithful? This text is a warning to us all, of the danger of leading someone to a place where they do not believe. We should be cautious. It's a warning that any of us 
who have not truly repented of our sin will go to hell. So be warned. If you love your sin and you cling to your sin, there's reason for concern. It's a call to share the message that could keep others from hell. The stakes are high. And as we consider all this, verse 50 ends with this admonition. And be at peace with one another. How does this fit? If we're going to be the kind of disciples and the witnesses that God has called us to be, if we're going to be salt to the world, we must live at unity with one another. We must be examples to the world of the power of the gospel. That those who have the spirit of God live differently than the world. That those who have the spirit of God love each other despite the things that could tear us apart. Jesus says to those who follow him, to those who he is sending into the world, live at peace with one another. And I think if we understand what's truly at stake, we would recognize how insignificant many of the things are that we allow to separate us. The stakes are high. The call is to be faithful. Love one another and don't be a cause for another to stumble. Fight sin and value God over anything else. Give yourself as a living sacrifice purified by fire. And be salt and light to a world who needs to hear the hope of salvation. It's our text. We may leave feeling more like we attended a funeral than a wedding. But church, know this. There's a wedding coming. There's a day when the groom will return for his bride. And my hope is that you will be among those who are saved. And may we be faithful in calling many others to join and to be a part of the bride of Christ who awaits his coming. Let's be faithful.